Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome to Season 8 of the podcast. It's hard to believe we're on Season 8 already, but it's a new year, and we are starting a series through the New Testament. We finished our Old Testament overview and are excited to talk about the the New Covenant. I mean, so much of the Old Testament has been building up to this and anticipating the coming of the Messiah we ended, um, are talking about the prophets and in between the Testaments that there have been so many disappointments that maybe they thought, oh, maybe this is what God's going to do. This is maybe what he's going to bring. And it always fell short. And now we get to Jesus in the New Testament. So this is uh, exciting. What we're going to do is... Um, talk a little bit about an overview of the four Gospels briefly, but then really get into Matthew and kind of start working our way through the New Testament books and letters as we go. Yeah, so a natural place to start as we talk about the four Gospels is probably with the word gospel. Mm-hmm. Like, what does the word gospel even mean? And we define this kind of in our season one of going through the Gospel of Mark, in which we just talked about it simply means good news. It, that's literally all that it means is good news. And each of these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focus in on the good news of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and what he came proclaiming, what he came teaching regarding his kingdom and the kingdom to come. And so it's a beautiful word that describes something exciting is yeah. the idea. And what's interesting about that word is if you go back um, to the first century, is it wasn't necessarily a religious word. Like when someone says gospel now, you think of it like... Uh, uh, and a religious word specifically, kind of like the word church, in, was just the word for assembly in the New Testament. That's a good example. But um, the word gospel was something that was used about the different ones of the Caesars, if yeah. I understand correctly. And it would be like a proclamation made about a new ruler. So it's like, all right, now good news. There's a new Caesar. There's a new king who's going to make everything great. And so everybody get excited uh, and be ready to submit <laughs> because you have a new ruler who's going, it's going to be the best thing ever. Um, and so the people would have been familiar with that word good news, and it would have carried with it the idea of, oh, who's the new king? And so, especially in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see a lot of emphasis on the good news of the kingdom. It's uh, not just any good news, but it's about a new ruler and a new way of doing things, a new source of authority. And so that's going to be this idea of gospel, which, by the way, the word gospel, it'll be used in different ways in the New Testament. Um, Later on, Paul will talk about, like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news, like the story about Jesus and his kingdom. But when we say, like, the gospel of Matthew, we're referring to the writing of Matthew. Yes, that's right. That it is the good news, but like we're referring to the book of Matthew when we say, oh, the gospel of Matthew. We're in the four gospels. Yeah. We're referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of the New Testament. And it might be worth talking about as, as well on the front end of this season. Why are there four gospels? Or I guess a better way to ask that is what is the purpose of there being four gospels? Four written accounts of the same person, the same characters, and really the same places. What is the benefit of that? And really, the way to think about it is four different perspectives. We'll get into the Gospel of Luke in another episode where he talks about the eyewitnesses that saw a lot of these things, and we'll get more into his purpose later. But for now, just think of it as being not redundant, but just 
these stories being strengthened by the four different perspectives in which it was seen and written. Yeah, so, they, they complement each other. Right. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's really cool to think about that Matthew and John were apostles of Jesus Christ, and we'll get into that later. But Mark and Luke were not apostles of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke most likely never had seen Jesus, and Mark possibly did. But they were writing it from eyewitnesses and going and talking to them. And th that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing because we also were not eyewitnesses. And so we also are going to want to go and investigate those things. So the fact that we have two Gospels that weren't written by apostles actually strengthens the accuracy of the events that we read about. And today as well, that's how things work. I mean, if any kind of major event happens, I'm thinking in police work specifically, what's the first thing the police that get on scene do, for instance, in a car accident, is they ask everyone around, what did you see? What, what happened? And people from different ends of the wreck are going to report different details. And together, the police or whoever's doing the investigation are going to have a more complete picture as to what happened. And that's kind of how I like to see the, the four Gospels. There's going to be overlap in details, but there's also going to be details that are given by one guy that wasn't seen by the other. And what it does for us is gives us a more full and complete picture of who Jesus is and what happened when he was here. So it's really a blessing that there are four different Gospels that we get to read from. Yeah, and I will say this, as we read it, um, a lot of times efforts are made to kind of uh, harmonize all four Gospels and put it into like one big story um, where it's like we're going to jump from Matthew to Luke to Mark and John and back to Matthew or whatever. Um, but it's interesting to me that God could have recorded. He could have just had one book about the life of Jesus and could have had all of the details from the four Gospels all put into one account. But that's not the way we have it. Uh, we have it in four individual accounts, four individual writers. And each of these writers is bringing a unique perspective in what they include about Jesus and in the order in which things happen, because it's not always chronological. Uh, we, in kind of modern-day Western culture, are very concerned with chronology and what happened first and second and third in a way that ancient writers weren't as worried about that. They, they organized things more thematically. And so the a story that you read in Matthew might have some different things before it and after it than it does in Mark because Matthew is recording it there to bring out something slightly different about Jesus in that account than maybe Mark is. And it's not to say that one is historical and one isn't. No, all of these, is, it is accurate history. But it's being recorded in such a way to emphasize a point about Jesus. And so as you read each of the Gospels individually, it's always good to ask the question, what, what is the context here? Why does Matthew put this story next to mm -hmm. that story? And we don't always know every answer there, but a lot of times we can start to see patterns emerge and be like, oh, wow, like all these stories are about the authority of Jesus, or all these stories are about the humble being exalted and the exalted being humbled. And we'll see that um, in Matthew, especially as you read through. And again, different ones of the Gospels pull out different themes from the life and miracles of Jesus. And the audience, too, is a cool thing to think about. Uh, the, the first readers that would have had their hands on the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark. Because in Matthew's case, and this is a good way for us to kind of segue into who he was and what he did, Matthew's Gospel has a lot of references to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and it, comparatively, we went through the Gospel of Mark in season one, if you were with us there. There are little to, to no references. Um, there are some in the Gospel of Mark, 
but not in comparison to what Matthew does. And it's likely because Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, people who would have known these stories, known these people, and known these references. And that really gives way into what Matthew starts his gospel off on, which is unique to him and none of the other gospels, and that's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Um, And he starts with Abraham and goes all the way down through to Jesus Christ. And uh, stops along the way. We see David and Solomon and some of these other great people we read about in the Old Testament that shows the lineage of Jesus directly links to kingship um, through King David. And that's going to be a really important thing that Matthew will continue to emphasize throughout his gospel. Now, the Gospel of Luke will also have a genealogy, but it's not at the very beginning like Matthew's is. And I think it would grab the reader's attention um, because as we did the Old Testament overview, I don't think we really stopped and smelled the roses on the genealogies there, but there's a bunch of them. Yeah. And uh, those are really important for people to be able to trace their lineage. And so for Jews to be able to see that Jesus was the son of David the king would have been really important for them to understand because Jesus is claiming this kingship um, that was promised to David all the way back in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter. That's right. And and we talked about that several times in our Old Testament overview and even in our last episode of Between the Testaments that there was a real electric atmosphere in the air of people realizing, hey, it's about the time that the prophets said the Messiah was going to come. And so there's false messiahs who come and those get put down. But people are looking for a an anointed one, a Messiah, to come. And so Jesus, uh, when Matthew begins his gospel this way and says, hey, Jesus is the son of David, I mean, our eyes kind of glaze over because like, oh, great, a list of hard-to-read names <laughs> right in the out of the gate. Way to go, Matthew. But for a Jew, they would have been riveted and said, wait a minute. He can actually trace his lineage back to David and back to Abraham. And those are the two big sets of promises. We talked about Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7. And so this is a perfect way for Matthew to communicate to a Jewish audience, hey, the Messiah you've been waiting for, because you believe in Abraham, you believe in David, it's all been leading up to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. The other thing I meant to mention before we got into Matthew 1 was who Matthew is. He was a tax collector. It's a little bit later in the gospel, but in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. I think it's kind of cool that Matthew, he he waits till the appropriate time to talk about even his own calling. But Matthew was a tax collector, and the Jewish people traditionally would have hated tax collectors that were also Jews because they're collecting for the Romans. They don't want to be oppressed by the Romans. And here's one of their fellow Jews that's collecting taxes from the Jews for the Romans, and yet Jesus calls him out of that, uh, not for some kind of, you know, physical war, for a spiritual war for a new kingdom. And Matthew is called to follow him right out of tax collecting. So it's really cool to see that. And he will eventually be one of the chosen 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Yes. And this may also be a good place to say that just looking at the text, all four of the Gospels are anonymous. Uh, the author does not identify themselves like Paul does in his letters. Hey, Paul, an apostle of Christ, you know, talking about this. Um, but 
it, it's very, it goes way, way back uh, that this gospel was connected to Matthew. And I think there's a good bit of evidence in favor of that. We're not going to go into all that today. Um, that this is written by one of the apostles, one of the 12, um, who was there, an eyewitness to these events, and most notably an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. We talked about that in our series of the book of Acts, but we'll emphasize that as well as we talk about particularly Matthew and John's gospels, uh, who were there for the events. So Matthew, I think it's really interesting that as a, as a Jew, um, he has some interesting organization to his gospel, and it has kind of an introduction and a conclusion. Chapters 1 and 2 is kind of introducing Jesus and connecting him to the Old Testament. The conclusion is his death, burial, and resurrection in chapters 26 through 28. But the body of Matthew's gospel is organized really into five parts, which is kind of interesting because that connects a little bit back to like the five books of Moses or the five books of the Psalms. Um, that was a big deal for Jews. And Matthew has five major teachings of Jesus that kind of either bookend or connect to these five sections of his gospel. There's five big movements. And so I just think that's really interesting. Uh, again, for a Jewish audience, how he's kind of saying, hey, like this is like the new Torah. This is the new uh, law. It's, it, it's, it's the new covenant that God has made with his people. And there's five parts to this one, too, uh, as he records the life of Jesus. And again, Mark and Luke will be organized different ways, but Matthew does it that way, which I think is significant. But in the first two chapters, uh, we've already talked about the genealogy, um, but in almost every single section, uh, he talks about the, the birth of Jesus, he talks about uh, the visit from the, the wise men, the magi, uh, from the east, probably from the area of Babylon. Um, he talks about the flight to Egypt, Herod's slaughter of the baby boys, them settling in Nazareth. But at the end of almost every section in the introduction section, he will say, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Uh, for instance, in Matthew 1, verse 22, after the angel comes and reassures Joseph that this child is, it's okay to marry Mary uh, because this child's from the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 1, 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Um, and that's from Isaiah 7, 14. And so the first two chapters of Matthew, he is just kind of relentlessly saying, hey, Jews, listen up. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you've been looking for in the Old Testament. Here's how he fulfills it. Here's how he fulfills it. And he doesn't keep saying that like all throughout. He'll say it a few times, but he just sets you up to like, okay, well, what Old Testament prophecy is fulfilling this time, you know? And so much of the ministry of Jesus has its roots in the Old Testament, either in the law or in the prophets. It's just really cool to see. And what we really see in the birth of Jesus is almost a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later in his life. As From the very beginning, people are jealous and threatening the life of Jesus because of who he is as the Messiah. And Herod did not like that Jesus was being born and tried to put an end to it, but God provided. God took care of Jesus, and God's hand was clearly on the situation. And very much like that is going to, or just like that, that's going to happen later in Jesus's life. That that the kings of earth and the Pharisees and the the scribes and the high priests, all of those guys are going to come after Jesus in an attempt to dethrone him. But what's really going to end up happening is in their attempt to dethrone him, Jesus is exalted and glorified. And so from the very beginning, uh, people are after Jesus, but God the Father has His hand on him. So it's it's kind of cool to see that early on in Matthew's gospel. Yeah. So the first of the five sections uh, of Matthew's, the kind of the body of his gospel, is chapters 3 through 7. 
And this is kind of an introduction to Jesus' ministry and his teaching. And it starts with John the baptizer, um, who is preparing the way. And even John fulfills prophecy, Isaiah 40. Um, it talks about the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mm-hmm. He's got some hard things to say to the people, doesn't he? He's kind of a fiery guy. Yeah. and um, He calls he, him a brood of vipers um, mm-hmm. in chapter 3 and verse 7. He tells him to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he's just very honest with them about what's to come if they don't humble themselves and repent and get ready for this kingdom that's coming. And John the Baptist, he has such a, a special role in the the early parts of the kingdom, but also this kind of cool relationship with Jesus in that they're earthly cousins, but he still sees the the deity and the messiahship of Jesus Christ. And it's kind of really cool to see that relationship as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, because John the Baptist will resurface a few times as we go through the book. Yes. And it really culminates at the end of chapter 3 with Jesus going to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. Mm -hmm. And John the Baptist understands his relationship with Jesus. When Jesus comes to ask John the Baptist to baptize him, John doesn't go, well, naturally, that makes sense. Come here. (laughs) Instead, he says, Lord, you want me to baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus will say, permitted at this time for in this way, it is fitting for us uh, for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John baptizes Jesus. And as soon as he goes into the water, the heavens open, and he sees the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him, and a voice comes out of the heavens, this is my, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And from this point forward really starts the, the ministry and teaching and miracles of Jesus Christ. But he starts off on really a hard note by immediately going into the wilderness and being tempted by Satan for 40 days. Yeah, and what's going to be interesting is as we read these different accounts, there's actually going to be a flow that connects Jesus once again to the Old Testament as we read these things. In chapter 2, he had to flee to Egypt to escape Herod and his anger that there's another king. Of course, Herod was paranoid. We talked a little bit in the last episode of last season about the Herod family and just how messed up they were. It's pretty crazy. But... Get this. So so Jesus, he comes out of Egypt, and then he passes through the water of baptism, in his case. And then he's in the wilderness for 40 days. And then, in chapter 5, he goes up on a mountain Mm -hmm. to deliver the message of, really, the law of the kingdom. Sound familiar? Yeah. Out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness and up on Mount Sinai to get the law of God. Um, Jesus is being presented as kind of a new Moses or a new Israel. Um, And so it's really cool to see that. I mean, Matthew doesn't like call attention to that, but for careful students of the Old Testament, you're like, oh, whoa, like Jesus is doing the same thing that Israel was doing, except most notably in the temptations in the wilderness, Israel failed miserably and was just complaining all the time and falling to temptation. Jesus resists every temptation that Satan throws at him and actually quotes from Deuteronomy, yep. which is all about the time leading up, you know, in the God's taking care of them in the wilderness. So I think that's really interesting uh, in just the introduction that Matthew gives to Jesus, all of the connections that he makes to the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Yeah. And so chapter 4, verse 17, after Jesus has been tempted and he gets out of the wilderness and starts his ministry, he tells us from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is 
the message of the king. This is really what the rest of the book is going to be about, is Jesus trying to get people to repent and turn to God and get ready for this kingdom that he has come to establish as the king. And he's going to need helpers for that. Jesus immediately will go out to the Sea of Galilee and see Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, who were casting their nets into the sea. And Jesus famously says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I I just get cold chills thinking about that because of the the multiple meanings there. And then he calls James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they will leave their boats and their father and follow Jesus as well. So Jesus has these men that will eventually be called as apostles and begins preaching and teaching all throughout Galilee, doing all kinds of miracles, which leads him to have this large crowd following him that naturally follows him up on this mountain in chapters 5 through 7 and hears him deliver this this kingdom speech, this kingdom manifesto, as our, our friend Paul Earnhardt calls it. And we actually did an entire season on this. So if you're just now following along with us in the HBG Bible Talks, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to season 3 here because we deep dive into every every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount for 11 or 12 episodes, I think, and get into what it means to be kingdom followers of Jesus and what it looks like to be citizens of this kingdom. And it starts off in probably the most surprising way any speech or sermon has ever started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom is a kingdom of humility, humbling ourselves, putting ourselves last and not first, which will follow throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew as well. And so we have to humble ourselves if we want to be a part of this kingdom. And I think it's notable that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is is the first of the five big teachings in Matthew. Is he puts this one first because it really sets the tone for everything else that's going to follow. We're going to see Jesus living this sermon out himself in a lot of ways. He's the perfect example of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And of course, he is the king himself. But that's notable, is that the king is is above his subjects, but he's also the one who's come down as a servant. Yeah to live, in a sense, like as a citizen, and show us a model. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to act and interact with other people in humility and and servitude. And it's amazing that the king became a servant first Mm -hmm. uh, to show us the way. So that's just a powerful thing about the kingdom of God. So we won't go into all the details of the Sermon on the Mount right now, but commend that to you. It's one of the greatest teachings of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that there are any bad teachings of Jesus, but it's, it's amazing. If you're starting to learn who Jesus is, it's a great place to start. And the, the people, just looking at what they learn about Jesus at the end of that sermon, it says, when you finish these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And that really picks up well for kind of the, the next movement of speeches, that Jesus is just so far different than everybody else um, because of the miracles and the healings and the authority that he has that no one else has. Mm -hmm. And so chapters 8 through 10 record a lot of miracles and teachings of Jesus um, as it starts with this centurion um, and a leper being healed and goes into Peter's mother-in-law being healed and just Jesus casting out demons and just doing this tremendous ministry that no one else before him has done. And it's interesting that Matthew, uh, there's organization going on here where there's kind of three miracles, and then he'll say, follow me, and then three more miracles, and he'll say, follow me, and that's where Matthew himself is introduced, and then three more miracles. So there's, it's always interesting. Again, we don't always see that kind of organization super clearly, but sometimes it's like, oh, wait, there's a pattern here. Like, why is this story next to that one? And so there's a whole lot of concentration on 
the healing ministry of Jesus Mm -hmm. in this particular section. And it leads up to chapter 10, which is really interesting because at the end of chapter 9, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then in chapter 10, he calls the 12 and says, all right, I'm going to send you out. You're kind of the answer to the prayer that you're supposed to be praying. And in chapter 10, we have the second big sermon of Jesus. And it kind of has three parts to it. I mean, this is where he's talking to his 12 apostles. And the word apostle, very significant in the New Testament. It means one who is sent out. And this is kind of his staff meeting, if you will. (laughs) Like, all right, like, hey, all right, guys, we're we're going to huddle. And here's what you need to do. Here's the game plan. And here's what you can expect when you go out. And so, like, phase one is, I think, specifically for the 12 and is saying, hey, it's very limited here. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. And don't take anything with you. Um, You know, no money, no extra clothes. Like, just go and be dependent on the people you meet. But um, he gives them a specific goal. See, I want you to go out now and proclaim the gospel. And he does give them power to do miracles like he was. Uh, gives them authority um, to do uh, to cast out demons and different kinds of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of tells them something scary. Uh, he gets real with them. I bet it was exciting to follow Jesus. I, I try to think about that all the time and then when I'm reading the gospels, what it would have been like to, to be with him. But Jesus gets real with them and says, look, it, it's going to be hard. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Jesus is up front with them and says, you are going to suffer for my sake. Mm-hmm. Jesus has given them the tools they need to succeed. But he also says it's going to be hard. This is not going to be an easy process. You, but you will be given what you need in the moment to succeed. And I just try to think about what it would have been like for those 12 apostles to hear that. Um, would have been scary, but also comforting at the same time, knowing that Jesus is going to be with you every step of the way. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is honest with them. And to the point where he says, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Yeah. Um, so a beautiful moment in Jesus' relationship with his apostles. Yeah, amen. And I think it's also interesting that you know he starts out really just kind of talking with the 12, but as he gets into these warnings, he really talks about when they're going to, are going to go out among the Gentiles. And the gospel is going to spread all over the world. And so he ends up just giving a lot of instruction that's useful for all disciples of Jesus by the end of the chapter um, and warnings. I mean, he does not sugarcoat anything in this chapter. So it's helpful for, for all of God's people. Yeah. Um, and so that gets us into the, the third big movement of the book, which is chapters 11 through 13. And it kind of keys in on some different responses to Jesus. It starts with John the baptizer, who seems to be struggling with some doubt, um, but he's reassured in those doubts. Jesus gives woes on different cities who did not repent, didn't listen to him, even though he'd done a ton of miracles in those places. And then gives one of the most famous statements at the end of chapter 11, where he says, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. Um, so Jesus is very hard at times, and he is so gentle at times, and he's both of those things, and we can't emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. And so in chapter 12, Jesus is confronted about the Sabbath day and some questions people had about that because they expected him to conform to some of their traditions and things. Um, and Jesus doesn't do that. Um, and he gets pretty fiery sometimes and calling them out uh, with their hardness of heart. Um, and toward the end of chapter 12, he talks a lot about the problem of the Jewish people and how they're not accepting the signs of the Holy Spirit. They're uh, bearing bad fruit. And even in the Old Testament, people repeat, repented. The Gentiles repented when Jonah came to them, but even God's own people are rejecting their Messiah. Um, so it's just kind of interesting to see some of the themes there about different reactions to Jesus um, in this section. And it's wrapped up with a chapter about the parables. Yeah, and we've seen like many parables in Matthew up until this point, but this is like what I call the starter pack of parables, where, <laughs> where Jesus, he, he gives one, and it's, it's simple in that you understand what he's saying. Like, it's the parable of the sower, by the way, or soils, uh, whatever have you, where, behold, the sower goes out to sow, and some falls over here by the road, and some falls over here by rocky places, some by the thorns, and then there's good soil that yields a crop, some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. But what I think I, I sometimes forget is, like, Jesus doesn't give the explanation right off the bat. Mm-hmm. He lets people kind of chew on it for a second. Well, and it's, it's the people not. That, it's the people that come to him later, right? Privately, it's not until later that the disciples come to him and they ask him, "Why do you speak to them in parables?" Which is a really good question. Jesus has done it up until this point, and they're like, "Jesus, why don't you just give it to them straight? Like, wh- why tell this story and then like make them think about it?" And Jesus tells them that to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he who will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus is saying, I think, that he's trying to separate the serious followers from those who are just casually listening. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you are going to have to think about what he says And you're going to have to ask him for help along the way. It's not just going to be given to you on a silver platter, but you're going to have to really, truly want it. And you can just kind of think about Jesus using these parables and analogies and and some people looking at him saying, this crazy guy, what, what is this even about? Scratching their head and walking off. And then there's the people who listen to it and they say, there's something to that. I need to know more about that. And they go to Jesus and they ask him about it. And there will be times that Jesus' own disciples will do that. They'll come to him later and they'll say, Jesus, what did you mean by this parable? And Jesus will sometimes lightly rebuke them because they didn't understand quickly enough. But he will, at the end, give them the explanation they need to understand the parable. And that's exactly what happens with the parable of the sower. It's after that that Jesus goes into the details, and this is in chapter 13, 18 through 23, if you want to read that, where Jesus explains to them what these different soils mean, and the message is, what soil are we? What are we striving to be? Are we trying to be this good soil that is willing to listen and hear the word and understand it and bear fruit? Mm-hmm. And really the rest of chapter 13 are just a shotgun approach of different parables that Jesus has. 
And he introduces almost all of them in Matthew's gospel with the kingdom of heaven is like this. And so he's teaching specifically about the kingdom, what it's like to be part of God's movement, what it's like to be a part of God's people and live for him in God's world. And so it's really fascinating. We won't go through all the parables right now, but um, to see that connection and that thread that runs through all of these particular parables that Jesus told a lot of other parables, but this is Matthew's collection um, for the purpose of looking at the kingdom in in, in particular. So that leads into the fourth big movement of Matthew, uh, which is chapters 14 through 20. And this one is a little harder to outline exactly, but it is uh, really dealing with different concepts of the kingdom and how it's a very different kind of kingdom than what people expected. Um, I think it's really interesting, chapter 15 in particular, where Jesus has kind of this showdown moment with some of the Pharisees about their traditions of their elders versus the actual commandments of God because they expected the Messiah to come and really conform to them. Mm-hmm but they needed to conform to him and to the commandments that God actually gave and not just their additions to it or their own traditions. And so Jesus has these different confrontations, and it's interesting to see that the people that are really accepting Jesus are often really surprising. Like there's this Gentile Canaanite woman who goes through some pretty hard things that Jesus says to her in order to have her child healed. Um, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are demanding different signs of Jesus, trying to uh, catch him and what he says. And Jesus is saying, hey, watch out for these people. But even Jesus' disciples don't fully get it. Peter famously, um, you know, says that you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. You're, you're Peter. And he makes a pun and says, on this rock, I'll build my church. But then right after that, Jesus says, and I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And Peter pulls him aside and says, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so it's like, wow, even Jesus' own disciples who've been with him for a while now are still struggling with, like, who is Jesus exactly? Yeah. How is this going to end? And so it's really fascinating to see just the different concepts of Jesus. And it's after Peter's great confession and then great failure that Jesus says, listen, you've got to take up your cross and follow yeah, me. That's right. This is not the kind of kingdom you expect. Yeah. And to just drive the point home as to who Jesus is, uh, Jesus takes his inner three in chapter 17, that's Peter, James, and John, up on this mountain just by themselves, and he's transfigured in Greek. The word is metamorphosis, or where we get the word for metamorphosis, before them, and his face shines like the sun, and his garments become as white as light. But it's really important to see like what happens on that mountain. Moses and Elijah show up, and yes, you're, you're hearing that correctly. Like Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament, like the, <laughs> yes. those the dead guys. Well, actually, Elijah, I guess, never died. He got taken up into heaven. But they're there hundreds of years after they were ever on the earth. And Jesus is talking with them. And Peter, like, wants to build a tabernacle for them, each of them, because he doesn't really know what to say, Mark's gospel tells us. And they're also, at the same time, terrified because this voice comes out of the heavens and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And you, you kind of see this picture of God coming into the scene and saying to the apostles, you need to understand who Jesus is. He's not like Moses and Elijah. He's better than them. Moses representing the law, I think, and Elijah the prophets. And yet you need to listen to Jesus. That's who you need to pay attention to and focus to. And so 
the disciples, as you could imagine, are, are just awestruck by this. And Jesus will tell them, you know, don't tell anyone about this until I've risen from the dead. And it's interesting because in 2 Peter 1, 17 and 18, Peter actually references this very account in his own writings. But this is a critical moment for these three apostles to understand who Jesus is. And so I think Stephen's exactly right that, that that's kind of what this whole section is about, is people trying to better understand who the Messiah is. Yeah. And so the, the big sermon in this section kind of comes in the middle, maybe, um, is in chapter 18. And there's a whole series of conversations. Not all of these are just sermons, but... And this one really focuses on the, the upside-down nature of the kingdom, that the first is going to be last, and the last is going to be first. You've got to become like a child to receive the kingdom of God. Um, you've got to go to your brother and, like, help him when he's in sin. And there's a whole process for that. And you've got to forgive each other. Um, the whole end of Matthew 18 is this incredible parable of the unforgiving servant. Um, and just that this kingdom is not about greatness in the way that they thought of greatness and often in the way that we think of greatness. It's about forgiveness and reconciliation and seeking the lost, um, the great becoming lowly in order to help other people. And that leads into the, the last part of this section, 19 and 20. There's a whole series where the, the, the ones who are exalted get humbled, uh, and the ones who are humbled get exalted. There's like the teaching on divorce where they challenge Jesus and he puts them in their place. There's like the little children that the disciples are like, no, we don't want them coming. And she's like, no, let them come. Uh, and then there's the, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and they think, oh, this has got to be good guy. And like he goes away sorrowful. And then there's the laborers in the vineyard where it's the guys who work the least who get paid the same. Yeah. The humble are exalted. Yeah. And then James and John call shotgun and want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand, and they get put in their place. And then these two blind guys who, like, don't have any societal standing are the ones that get exactly what they want from Jesus. They're healed of their sight. So it's just really cool to see, like, the reversal back and forth and back and forth in 19 and 20, how Matthew puts those uh, accounts together. And then the narrative shifts in chapter 21 as it begins the last five speeches or whatever you want to call them that we've been talking about, when it says that when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage and at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Jesus' attention, it like, turns toward Jerusalem at this point, and it is going to end up being his kind of final ascent or march, if you will, to the city of Jerusalem where he is going to be crucified. And it starts with him entering in in a really humble but exalted way at the same time. If you're paying attention to the prophecies, yeah. Yeah, and he comes in on a cult, which Zechariah 9.9 had prophesied about. And as Jesus is marching into the city this way, people are like throwing their coats down and they're spreading branches across the road and they're shouting, Hosanna, which means, O Lord, save. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest a quote from Psalm 118.26. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus is riding into his kingdom. And if you're thinking of it from an earthly standpoint, you're like, This is it. He's, he's going he's gonna to kick the Romans out. He's going to come in, and he's going to be the king. Remember what those blind guys were calling him back in chapter 20? The son of David. Here he is to take the kingship. 
And he gets into the king or into the kingdom, into Jerusalem. He walks into the temple and he cleanses it. That was a kingly task. That's something we saw Josiah doing back in the Old Testament. And so you're excited, but Jesus doesn't take the kingdom in the way a lot of these people expected him to. Instead, he goes as a sheep is led to slaughter. He lets them arrest him. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but you just have to understand what the people are thinking at this point as Jesus is marching in. And he's pronouncing judgment on them. I mean, some of the most shocking chapters, I think, in all the Gospels are in chapter 23, chapter 24, and chapter 25, where Jesus is just straightforward with them of the destruction that's going to come to this city and to those who are not willing to yield themselves to the, uh, to the Messiah, to the King. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a really um, startling few chapters of straight judgment language that Jesus is using. Yeah, and what's interesting is this isn't like a chapter on parables, but there's a bunch of parables in chapter 21 and into chapter 22, and pretty much all of the parables have to do with the Jewish people and the fact that they're going to reject their king. They're going to reject the Messiah. And again, you can kind of see the the common thread running through a lot of these different parables that happens. And then Jesus, there's just an increasing animosity. There's increasing conflict with the religious leaders. They try to catch him about paying taxes and you know, hypotheticals about the resurrection. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus perfectly answers each of these you know, attempts to catch him. Um, he's going to have to give himself up mm-hmm. if they're going to actually get him. Um, but then the, the fifth sermon is chapters 23 through 25. And like Chase just mentioned, you know, wow, chapter 23, Jesus is on fire against the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you. There's like seven or eight woes to them, just saying it's going to be terrible for you. And then in chapter 24, he talks a lot about how the city of Jerusalem that he just you know, was led into is going to be destroyed. And what's kind of challenging about this fifth sermon of Jesus is there does seem to be kind of a shift in it where he's mixing judgment language that's going to be specifically, that will historically happen, with the city of Jerusalem, with judgment language that's going to be about the end of the world and the final judgment. And by the end of chapter 25, you have literally the final judgment scene where the sheep and the goats are separated on the right and the left, and people are judged. Uh, Some go in to be with the Lord forever, and some are cast out. Um, And so it's really interesting to see kind of how there's this blending of judgment language. Mm-hmm. And this is true in several of the sermons. We talked back in chapter 10 about how the sermon started out as a huddle for the 12 and kind of morphed into a teaching for all disciples and way into the future. I mean, that's true of this fifth sermon as well, where it starts out very specific to the time and place of Jesus and the destruction that's coming on that city and morphs into a much bigger judgment picture for the future. Um, but all of it's helpful and relevant for us as we read these five great sermons of Jesus, and that leads up to his conclusion, the climax of the book, where Jesus is now going to fulfill the last part of God's plan for him. Which is going to be the crucifixion. Um, And so Jesus starts chapter 26, as Matthew records it for us, in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. And that is really what takes the rest of the narrative throughout the rest of the book, is um, Jesus' death. And you see, people, 
think about this um, chapter 26 in terms of like Jesus preparing for death and also people preparing for Jesus' death. So in chapter 26, 6 through 13, you have this woman who breaks this crazy expensive vial and pours it on Jesus. And Jesus says, um, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. But then the very next story is someone else preparing for the death of Jesus in a completely different way. Judas is preparing to betray Jesus and to sell him out for his crucifixion. Um, And so then Jesus, of course, um, tries to prepare his disciples in this last Passover and he establishes the Lord's Supper, which I know we've talked about in a previous episode. And then Jesus will go into the garden and prepare himself for the same exact crucifixion. So it's really cool to see the, the multiple layers of the preparation that went into Jesus's uh, crucifixion and his death. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus uh, prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, that Jesus is betrayed. Um, that they come and they seize him and arrest him. And Judas, of course, does it by kissing Jesus to signify who it was that needed to be arrested. And one of the people that's with Jesus pulls out his sword. We know that it's Peter from the other Gospels. And he strikes the slave of the high priest and cuts off his ear. And Jesus says, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think I can appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? The disciples are now confused. They, they thought, we're, we're going to fight. We're fighting the Romans. But Jesus says, that's not the kind of battle we're fighting. And Jesus is led away, and his disciples flee. Leave him alone for him to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's incredible to, to read, especially from Matthew's perspective, mm-hmm. because he would, would have been one of those disciples that left him and fled. Yes. And one of the things we see as we get here toward the end is just how much it slows down. Um, you know, we've had a lot of like overview things of Jesus' ministry, and he healed a bunch of people. Oh, and he healed a bunch more people. But these last hours of Jesus' life, it's just given us a play-by-play of every little interaction, every conversation, uh, the trials of Jesus, which you can call them trials. Um, it's just these mock trials, basically, where they're trying to find something, some reason to put him to death, and they're stumbling over themselves. And Jesus has to basically be the one to say, "I'm the Messiah." Um, for them to say, oh, he's blaspheming. And then they take him to Pilate, and Pilate, um, you know, tries to get out of it by offering the crowd another terrible criminal named Barabbas and is trying to wash his hands of it, but he ultimately wants to please the people. And so he just gives up, basically, and allows Jesus to be crucified. And so Jesus, in these moments of crucifixion, again, it's amazing to me, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, how many Old Testament references he packs in. And you particularly, if you go read the crucifixion account in Matthew, in Matthew 27, starting just before that, really, with the mocking of the soldiers in verse 27, Matthew 27, 27, reading all the way down through the end of the chapter, and then go read a passage like Psalm 22, and just try to match up all of the prophecies that are happening that are fulfilled both by Jesus, but also by God's people, who are hurling the same insults at him that the psalm talks about, and by even the Gentile Romans who are casting lots for his clothes. They don't have any idea about these prophecies. And just on how many levels Matthew is showing us the death of Jesus 
even though it would have looked totally senseless and totally out of control to the people standing around, is fulfilling exactly what God said mm-hmm. would happen hundreds and even a thousand years before any of this ever happened. And so it's amazing to see in the chaos of the moment and yet the control of God, that this is what Jesus knew would happen and was willing to do for us. And all of it leads up to what seems like his greatest defeat. The the one who is most exalted has now been humbled all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Mm -hmm. But that's not where Matthew's story ends. And Matthew 28, the tomb is empty. And it's women on the first day of the week that find it empty. That's recorded across all four gospel accounts. That's noteworthy to see. And they're wondering, you know, where is he? Where where'd he go? And uh, it records that there was this severe earthquake that occurred, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And the guards are terrified. And the angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said, which is exactly right. Jesus said it three times that this is exactly what was going to happen. Come see the place where he was lying and go tell the disciples that he's risen. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they run off in fear, naturally, and great joy. Go to the disciples and tell them what's happened. And Jesus meets them and greets them. And they come and they worship Jesus and they fall down at his feet. And the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples. Um, and Matthew also records for us, unique to him, it's kind of kind of cool, to see what people were saying about this. Um, there was a cover-up attempt at Jesus' resurrection. You know, they were paying off the guard saying, you know, say that you, you fell asleep. Say that's why this happened. And that's being said to this day, which is noteworthy. And Jesus, um, as the 11 disciples meet up with him, Jesus will give them, what we call the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus will say to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, that's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And so Jesus ends his, or excuse me, Matthew ends his gospel with the commission that Jesus gave to the apostles, that they are to go out and continue this ministry and to continue teaching men to listen and follow Jesus and to submit to him in baptism and to make these disciples across all the nations. And so I think it's really cool that Matthew's gospel actually ends there, which is, again, unique to him. And I think it's also interesting that Matthew began his gospel talking about Jesus being the son of Abraham and the son of David. And he ends the gospel by saying, I have all authority, which is like David. He, he's, the, he's the ultimate king. And go make disciples of all nations. Mm-hmm. And that was the promise to Abraham. In your family, all nations will be blessed. And so Matthew bookends his gospel with Jesus fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament to Abraham and to David and showing how God keeps his promises. And this has been the actual not disappointing ending. Finally, like all the people they thought were going to fulfill God's plan. Nope, it wasn't them. It was Jesus who fulfilled it in the most surprising of ways. And so that's Matthew's good news. And it's amazing uh, to see this gospel all put together. And um, we'll talk about how it compares to some of the other gospels in these following episodes. Yeah, so Lord willing, we'll get into the gospel of Mark next time. And we'll look at how he's uh, sharing his perspective a little bit differently from Matthew and the others.
Yep, if you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, uh, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review so we can reach more people. Um, If you're interested in studying like this, we love to go through books of the Bible with people. Reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or you can email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies or other things, look at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.